This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I have had to learn the simplest things last, which made for difficulties. Even at sea, I was slow to get the hand out or to cross a wet deck. The sea was not finally my trade, but even my trade at it, I stood estranged from that which was most familiar, was delayed and not content with the man's argument that such postponement is now the nature of obedience that we are all late in a slow time, that we grow up many, and the single is not easily known. It could be, though the sharpness, the achiote, I note in others, makes more sense than my own distances, the agilities they show daily who do the world's businesses and who do nature's, as I have no sense I have done either. I have made dialogues, have discussed ancient texts, have thrown what light I could, offered what pleasures docete allows. But the known? This I have had to be given. A life, love, and from one man, the world. Tokens. But sitting here, I look out as a wind and water man testing and missing some proof. I know the quarters of the weather, where it comes from, where it goes. But the stem of me, this I took from their welcome or their rejection of me, and my arrogance was neither diminished nor increased by the communication. It is undone business I speak of this morning, with the sea stretching out from my feet. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my show today is a new one for Design Matters. It is a spoken word celebration in honor of National Poetry Month. The piece I just read was a poem by American modernist poet Charles Olson. It is titled Maxim to Himself, and it is one of my most treasured poems, one of my most favorite poems. Charles Olson was a crucial link between the poets Ezra Pound and William Carlos Williams and the new American poets a rubric which includes the New School, the New York School, rather, the Black Mountain School, the Beat Poets, and the San Francisco Renaissance, and subsequently many postmodern groups, such as the Poets of the Language School. They include Olson as a primary and precedent figure. The next piece that I am going to read on today's special edition of Design Matters is by the journalist, short story writer, and novelist, experimental writer, Italo Calvino. His imaginative work made him one of the most important writers of the 20th century. He was born in Cuba in 1923. He died in Italy in 1985. He is also the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. And this short story 
sort of dovetails all of my passions. It is titled The Light Years, and it is from the book Cosmic Comics, written in 1965. It was translated from the Italian by William Weaver. And the interesting thing about the short stories in Cosmic Comics is that each story takes a scientific principle and builds an imaginative tale around it. And this is a fairly long short story, so please get comfortable. But this story is based on the following principle. The more distant a galaxy is, the more swiftly it moves away from us. A galaxy located at 10 billion light years from us would have a speed of recession equal to the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. The quasi-stars recently discovered, this was written in 65, dear listeners, so please keep that in mind, are already approaching this threshold. So here's the story, The Light Years by Italo Calvino. One night, I was, as usual, observing the sky with my telescope. I noticed a sign was hanging from the galaxy a hundred million light years away. On it was written, I saw you. I made a quick calculation. The galaxy's light had taken up a hundred million years to reach me, and since they saw up there what was taking place here a hundred million years later, the moment when they had seen me must date back 200 million years. Even before I checked my diary to see what I had been doing that day, I was seized by a ghastly presentiment. Exactly 200 million years before, not a day more nor a day less, something had happened to me that I had always tried to hide. I had hoped that with the passage of time, the episode had been completely forgotten. It was in sharp contrast, at least, so it seemed to me, with my customary behavior before and after that date. So if ever anybody wanted to dig up that business again, I was ready to deny it quite calmly, and not, not only because it would have been impossible to furnish proof, but also because an action determined by such exceptional conditions, even if it was really verified, was so improbable that it could be considered untrue in all good faith, even by me. Instead, from a distant celestial body, here was somebody who had seen me, and the story was cropping up again, now, of all times. Naturally, I was in a position to explain everything that had happened, and what caused it to happen, and to make my own behavior completely comp comprehensible, if not excusable. I thought of replying at once with a sign, using a phrase in my own defense, like, let me explain, or else... I'd like to have seen you in my place, but this wouldn't have been enough, and the things that would have to be said were too many to be compressed into a short statement legible at such a distance. And above all, I had to be careful not to make a misstep, not to reinforce with an explicit admission what that I saw you merely hinted at. In short, before leaving myself open with any declaration, I would have to know exactly what they had seen from the galaxy, and what they hadn't. And for this purpose, all I could do was ask, using a sign on the order of, did you really see everything, or just a little bit? Or perhaps, let's see if you're telling the truth. What was I doing? 
then I would have to wait long enough for them to be able to see my sign and then an equally long period until I could see their answer and attend to the necessary rectifications. All of this would take another 200 million years, or rather, a few million years more, because while the images were coming and going with the speed of light, the galaxies continued to move apart. Therefore, that constellation now was no longer where I had seen it, but a bit farther on, and the image of my sign would have to chase it. I mean, it was a slow system, which would have obliged me to discuss again, more than 400 million years after they had happened, those events that I wanted to make everyone forget in the shortest possible time. I thought the best line to take was to act as if nothing had happened, minimize the importance of what they might have found out. So I hastened to expose in full view a sign on which I had written simply, What of it? This would be useful as a feeler to see how seriously I should take their affirmation, I saw you. The distance separating us from its dock of a hundred million light years the galaxy had sailed a million centuries before, journeying into the darkness, would perhaps make it less obvious that my what of it was replying to their I saw you of two hundred million years before. But it didn't seem wise to include more explicit references in the new sign, because if the memory of that day, after three million centuries, was becoming dim, I certainly didn't want to be the one to refresh it. After all, the opinion they might have formed of me on that single occasion shouldn't worry me too much. The facts of my life the ones that followed after that day for years and centuries and millennia testified, at least the great majority of them, in my favor. So I had only to let the facts speak for themselves. If from that distant celestial body they had seen what I was doing one day, 200 million years ago, they must have seen me also the following day, and the day after that, and the next, and the next, and they would gradually have modified the first negative opinion of me they might have formed hastily on the basis of an isolated episode. In fact, when I thought how many years had already gone by since that I saw you was convinced the bad impression must now have been erased by time and followed by a probably positive evaluation, or one in any case, that corresponded more to reality. However, this rational certainty was not enough to afford me relief. Until I had the proof of a change of opinion in my favor, I would remain uneasy at having been caught in an embarrassing position and identified with it, nailed fast in that situation. Now, you will say I could very well have shrugged off the opinion of me held by some strangers living on a remote constellation. As a matter of fact, what worried me wasn't the limited opinion of this or that celestial body, but the suspicion that the consequences of their having seen me might be limitless. Around that galaxy there were many others, some with a radius shorter than by a hundred million light years, with observers who kept their eyes open. The I saw you sign, before I had glimpsed it, had certainly been read by inhabitants of other celestial bodies, and the same thing would have happened afterwards on the gradually more distant constellations. 
even if no one could know precisely to what specific situation that I saw you referred, this indefiniteness would not in the least be to my advantage. On the contrary, since people are always ready to believe the worst, what I might really have been seen doing at a distance of 100 million light years was, after all, nothing compared to everything that elsewhere they might imagine had been seen. The bad impression I might have left during that moment of heedlessness two million centuries ago would then be enlarged and multiplied, refracted across all the galaxies of the universe nor was it possible for me to deny it without making the situation worse, since, not knowing what extreme and slanderous deductions those who hadn't directly seen me might have come to, I had no idea to where, begin, where to begin and where to end my denials. In this state of mind, I kept looking around every night with my telescope. And after two nights, I noticed that on a galaxy at a distance of a hundred million light years and one light day, they had also put up a sign that said, I saw you. There could be no doubt that they were also referring to that time. What I had always tried to hide had been discovered not only by one celestial body, but by also another located in quite a different zone in space. And still by others, in the nights that followed, I continued to see new signs with I saw you on them set on different constellations every time. From a calculation of the light years, it emerged that the moment when they had seen me was always the same. To each of these I saw you's, I answered with signs marked by contemptuous indifference, such as, oh really, how nice of you, or else, fat lot I care, or else, by an almost provocative mockery, such as, tant pis, or else, look, it's me, but still retaining my reserve. Though the logic of the situation led me to regard the future with reasonable optimism, the convergence of all those I saw use on a single point in my life, a convergence surely fortuitous due to a special condition of interstellar visibility, the single exception was one celestial body where, corresponding to that same date, a sign appeared saying, we can't see a damn thing, kept me in a constant state of nerves. It was as if in the space containing all the galaxies, the image of what I had done that day were being projected in the interior of a sphere that swelled constantly at the speed of light. The observers of the celestial bodies that gradually came within the sphere's radius were enabled to see what had happened. Each of these observers could in turn be considered the center of a sphere also expanding at the speed of light, projecting the words, I saw you, on their signs all around. At the same time, all these celestial bodies belong to galaxies moving away from one another in space at speed proportional to the distance, and every observer who indicated he had received a message before he could receive a second one had already moved off through space at a constantly increasing speed. At a certain point, the farthest galaxies that had seen me or had seen the I saw you sign from a galaxy closer to us or the I saw the I saw you from a bit farther on would reach the 10 billion light year threshold beyond which 
they would move off at 300,000 kilometers per second, the speed of light, and no image would be able to overtake them after that. So there was the risk that they would remain with their temporary mistaken opinion of me, from which that moment on would become definitive, no longer rectifiable, beyond all appeal, and therefore, in a sense, correct, corresponding to the truth. So it was indispensable to clear up the misunderstanding as quickly as possible. And to clear it up, I could hope for only one thing, that, after the occasion, I had been seen other times when I gave another image of myself, the one that was, I had, I had no doubts on this score, the true image of me that should be remembered. In the course of the last 200 million years, there had been no lack of opportunities, and for me just one, very clear, would be enough to avoid confusion. Now, for example, I recall the day when I had really been myself. I mean myself in the way I wanted others to see me. This day, I calculated rapidly, had been exactly 100 million years ago. So, on the galaxy, 100 million light years away, they were seeing me at this very moment in that situation so flattering to my prestige and their opinion of me that was surely changing, modifying, or rather refuting that first fleeting impression. Right now or thereabouts because now the distance that separated us was no longer 100 million light years, but 101. Anyhow, I only had to wait an equal of number of years to allow the light there to arrive there. The date when that would happen was easily calculated, bearing Hubble's constant in mind. And then I would learn their reaction. Those who had managed to see me at moment X would, all the more surely, have seen me at moment Y. And since my image in Y was much more convincing than in X, indeed, I would call it more inspiring, unforgettable, they would remember me in Y, whereas what had been seen of me in X would be forgotten immediately, erased perhaps after having been fleetingly recalled to mind in a kind of dismissal, as if to say, just think, one who is like Y can by chance be seen as X, and you might believe he is X, although it's clear he's absolutely Y. I was almost cheered by the number of I saw you still appearing all around, because it meant that interest in me was aroused, and therefore my more radiant day would escape no one. It would have had, or rather was already having, beyond my knowledge, a much wider resonance than the sort limited to given surroundings, and moreover, I must admit, rather marginal, which I, in my modesty, had formerly expected. You must also consider those celestial bodies from which, through absent-mindedness or bad placing, they hadn't seen me, but only a nearby I saw you sign. They also had set up signs saying, looks as if they've seen you, or else from where they are they can see you, expressions in which I sensed a touch of curiosity or of sarcasm. On those bodies, too, 
There were AIs trained on me, and now, precisely because they had missed one opportunity, they would hardly allow a second to escape them, and having received only indirect and hearsay information about X, they would be all the more ready to accept Y as the only true reality concerning me. So the echo of the moment Y would be propagated through time and space. It would reach the most distant, the fastest galaxies, and they would elude all further images, racing at light speed of 300 kilometers per second and taking that now definitive image of me beyond time and space where it would be all the truth containing in its sphere with unlimited radius, all the other spheres with their partial and contradictory truths. A hundred million centuries or so, after all, aren't an eternity, but to me they seemed never to go by. Finally, the night arrived. I had long since aimed my telescope at that same galaxy of the first time. I moved my right eye, its lid half-closed to the eyepiece. I raised my eyelid slowly, and there was the constellation perfectly framed, and there was a sign in its midst, the words as yet indistinct. I focused better. There was written, Tra-la-la-la. Just that, Tra-la-la-la. At the moment when I had expressed the essence of my personality with abundant evidence and with no risk of misinterpretation, at the moment when I had furnished the key to interpreting all the acts of my past and future life and to forming an overall and objective opinion, what they had seen, they who had not only the opportunity but also the moral ob obligation to observe and note what I was doing, they hadn't seen anything hadn't been aware of anything, hadn't observed anything special. To discover that such a great part of my reputation was at the mercy of a character who was so untrustworthy left me prostrate. That proof of myself, which because of the various favorable circumstances that had accompanied it, I considered incapable of repetition, had gone by unobserved, wasted, definitely lost for a whole zone of the universe, only because that gentleman had allowed himself five minutes of idleness, of relaxation, we might as well say of irresponsibility, his head in the air like an idiot, perhaps in the euphoria of someone who has a drop too much, and on his sign he had found nothing better to write than a meaningless scrawl, perhaps the silly tune that he had been whistling, forgetting his duties, tra-la-la-la. La, la. Only one thought afforded me some comfort. The thought that on other galaxies there were bound to be more diligent observers. Until then, I had never been so pleased at the great number of spectators that the old and unfortunate episode had. Now they would be ready to perceive the new situation. I returned to the telescope night after night. A few nights later, a galaxy at the proper distance appeared to me in all its splendor. It had a sign, and on it was written this sentence, You have a flannel undershirt. Tears in my eyes, I racked my brain for an explanation. Perhaps in that place,
place with the passage of time, they had so perfected their telescopes that they amused themselves by observing the most insignificant details, the undershirt a person wore, whether it was flannel or cotton, and all the rest meant nothing to them. They paid no attention to it at all. And for them, my honorable act, my, shall we say, magnanimous and generous act, had gone for nothing. They had retained only one element, my flannel undershirt, an excellent undershirt, to be sure, and perhaps at another moment I would have been pleased at their noticing, but not then, no, not then. In any case, I had many other witnesses awaiting me. It was only natural that out of the whole number, some should fail. I wasn't the sort of person to become distraught over such a little setback. In fact, from a galaxy a bit further on, I finally had the proof that someone had seen perfectly how I'd behaved and had evaluated my action properly, that is, enthusiastically. Indeed, on a sign he had written, that character's really on the ball. I noted it with complete satisfaction, a satisfaction, mind you, which merely confirmed my expectation, or rather my certainty that my merits would be suitably recognized. But then the expression, that character, attracted my attention. Why did they call me that character if they already knew me and had seen me, even in that unfortunate circumstance? Shouldn't I be quite familiar to them already? With some adjustment, I improved the focus of my telescope and discovered at the bottom of the same sign another sentence written in smaller letters. Who the hell can he be? Could you imagine a worse stroke of luck? Those who had held the key to understanding who I really was hadn't recognized me. They hadn't connected this praiseworthy episode with that deplorable incident 200 million years earlier, so the deplorable incident was still attributed to me, and the other wasn't. The other remained an impersonal, anonymous anecdote which didn't belong to anyone's history. My first impulse was to brandish a sign. It's me! I gave up the idea. What good would become of that? They would see it more than a hundred million years after moment X had gone by. We were approaching the half-billion mark. To be sure of making myself understood, I would have to specify, dig up that old business again. And this was just what I wanted most to avoid. By now, I had lost my self-confidence. I was afraid I wouldn't receive any greater amends from the other galaxies either. Those who had seen me had seen me in partial, fragmentary, careless ways, or had understood only up to a point what was happening, missing the essential quality, not analyzing the elements of my personality which, from one situation to the next, were thrown into relief. Only one sign said what I was really, what I had really been expecting. You know something? You're on the ball. I hastened to leave through my notebook to see what reactions had come from that galaxy at moment X. By coincidence, that was the very place where the sign had appeared saying, We can't see a damn thing. 
In that zone of the universe, I surely enjoyed a higher esteem, no denying that, and I ought to have rejoiced at last, but instead I felt no satisfaction at all. I realized that since these admirers of mine weren't those who might earlier have formed an unfavorable opinion of me, I didn't give a damn about them. The assurance that moment Y had refuted and erased moment X couldn't come to me from them, and my uneasiness continued exacerbated by the great length of time and by my not knowing whether the causes of my dismay were there and whether or not they would ever be dispelled. Naturally, for the observers scattered over the universe, moment X and moment Y were only two among countless observable moments. And in fact, every night on the constellations located at the most varied distances, signs appeared referring to other episodes, signs saying, straight ahead, you're on the right track. There you go again. Watch your step. I told you so. For each of them, I would work out the calculation, the light years from here to there, the light years from there to here, and establish which episode they were referring to. All the actions of my life, every time I picked my nose, all the times I managed to jump down from a moving tram, were still there, traveling from one galaxy to another, and they were being considered, commented on, judged. The comments and judgments were not always pertinent. The sign tisk tisk applied to the time I gave a third of my salary to a charity subscription. The time this time I like you to when I had forgotten in a train the manuscript of a treatise that had cost me years of study. My famous prelusion of the University of Gotengan was commented on with the words, watch out for drafts. In a certain sense, I could set my mind at rest. No action of mine, good or bad, was completely lost. At least an echo of it was always saved, or rather several echoes, which varied from one end of the universe to the other. And in that sphere, which was expanding and generating other spheres, but the echoes were discontinuous, conflicting pieces of information, inessential, from which the nexus of my actions didn't emerge, and a new action was unable to explain or correct an old one, so they remained next to the other with a plus or minus sign, like a long, long polynomial which cannot be reduced to a more simple expression. What could I do? What could I do at this point? To keep bothering with the past was useless. So far it had gone the way it had gone. I had to make sure the future went better. The important thing was that in everything I did, it should be clear what was essential where the stress should be placed, what was to be noted and what not. I had procured an enormous directional sign, one of those huge hands with the pointing index finger. When I performed an action to which I wanted to call attention, I had only to raise that sign, trying to make the finger point at the most important detail of the scene. For the moments when instead I preferred not to be observed, I made another sign, a hand with the thumb pointing in the opposite direction to the one I was turning to distract attention. All I had to do was carry these signs wherever I went and raise one or the other according to the occasion. It was a long-term operation, naturally. The observers hundreds of thousands of light years away would be hundreds of thousands of millennia late in perceiving what I was now doing, and I would have to wait more hundreds of thousands of millennia to read their reactions. This delay was inevitable, but there was, unfortunately, another drawback I hadn't foreseen. What could I do when I realized I had raised the wrong sign? For example, 
At a certain moment, I was sure I was about to do something that would give me dignity and prestige. I hastened to wave the sign with the index finger pointed at me, and at that very moment, I happened to make a dreadful faux pas, something unforgivable, a display of human wretchedness to make you sink into the ground in shame. But it was done. That image with the pointing sign was already navigating through space. Nobody could stop it. It was devouring the light years, spreading among the galaxies, arousing in the millions of future centuries comments and laughter and turned-up noses, which from the depths of the millennia would return to me and would force me to still clumsier excuses to more embarrassed attempts at correction. Another day, instead, I had to face an unpleasant situation, one of those situations in life that one is obliged to live through, knowing that whatever happens, there's no way of showing up well. I shielded myself with the sign with the thumb pointing in the other way, and I went off. Unexpectedly, in that delicate and ticklish situation, I displayed a quick-wittedness, a balance, a tact, a decisiveness that no one, myself least of all, had ever suspected in me. I suddenly revealed hidden talents that implied a long ripening of character, and meanwhile the sign was deflecting the observer's gaze, making them look at a pot of peonies nearby. Cases like these, which at first I considered exceptions, the result of my inexperience, kept happening to me more and more frequently. Too late, I realized I should have pointed out what I hadn't wanted seen and should have hidden what I had instead pointed out. There was no way to arrive before the image and to warn them not to pay attention to the sign. I tried making a third sign with the word correction to raise when I wanted to annul the preceding sign. But in every galaxy, this image would have been seen only after the one it was meant to correct, and by then the harm was done, and I could only seem doubly ridiculous. And to neutralize that with another sign, ignore correction, would have been equally useless. I went on living, waiting for the remote moment when, from the galaxies, the comments on the new episodes would arrive charged for me with embarrassment and uneasiness. Then I would able to rebuke, sending off my messages of reply, which I was already pondering, each dictated by the situation. Meanwhile, the galaxies for whom I was most compromised were already revolving around the threshold of the billions of light years at such speeds that, to reach them, my messages would have to struggle across space clinging to their accelerating flight. Then, one by one, they would disappear from the last 10 billion light-year horizon, beyond which no visible object can be seen, and they would bear with them a judgment by then irrevocable. And thinking of this judgment, I would no longer be able to change, and I suddenly felt a kind of relief, as if peace could come to me only after the moment when there would be nothing to add and nothing to remove in that arbitrary ledger of misunderstandings and the galaxies which were gradually reduced to the last tale of the last luminous ray, winding from the sphere of darkness, seemed to bring with them the only possible truth about myself. And I couldn't wait until all of them, one after the other, had followed this path. 
That was a story titled The Light Years by the Nobel Prize winning writer Italo Calvino. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed reading it. My next piece featured here on an all spoken word design matters is a piece, it's a poem written by Tanya Rochelle. Tanya Rochelle's first book, Karaoke Funeral, was winner of the 2003 Violet Reed Haas Prize. Published by Snake Nation Press, she lives near Atlanta, where she teaches writing at the Marvelous Portfolio Center and edits poetry for the Chattahoochee Review. This piece is titled, My Best Friend Moved 2,000 Miles Away, and today I am dedicating this to one of my dearest and oldest friends, who also heartbreakingly moved 2,000 miles away. My Best Friend Moved 2,000 Miles Away by Tanya Rochelle Even my dogs hated me today, that weasel-eyed chihuahua and the prissy Jack Russell, their thick middle-aged growls when I sat too close on the sofa. And my three-year-old socked me smack in the nose. I almost slapped her back, except it was my fault she didn't get her nap. What with me lugging the vacuum from room to room like something that couldn't wait. I don't recognize myself anymore, the magpie shrill of my voice, the way the corners of my mouth mop the floor. I can't spare the energy to smile, something my husband just doesn't get. Crooning smile, like our sadistic high school track coach each time I round a bend. Apparently, he doesn't like me much either, my spouse and neither do the two teenage daughters who brandish unfeasible schedules as I shoot daggers at their renegade belly buttons. It's a civil war, all right. Who will empty the dishwasher, who will buy the KY, and all the while, there, all of them tossing dead herrings of socks and panties into a pile that blocks the sun. That was a poem titled My Best Friend Move 2,000 Miles Away by the poet Tanya Rochelle. Writer and poet Raina Maria Rilke is considered one of the greatest lyric poets of modern Germany. Rilke created the object poem as an attempt to describe with utmost clarity physical objects the silence of their concentrated reality. Raina Maria Rilke was born in 1875, and he died in 1926. And this poem is considered one of his masterpieces. It's titled The Panther. It is translated from the German by Stephen Mitchell. The Panther. His vision from the constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him there are a thousand bars, and behind the bars, no world. As he paces in cramped circles over and over, the movement of his powerful, soft strides is like a ritual dance around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed. Only at times, the curtain of the pupils lifts quietly. An image enters in, rushes down through the tense, arrested muscles, plunges into the heart, 
and is gone. You are listening to a special edition of Design Matters today. I am celebrating National Poetry Month by reading wonderful pieces of literature, poetry, and short stories. I think that poetry is really one of the highest art forms, really. I think that there is nothing more pure than the act of writing and reading poetry. A very special poem I'd like to read next. This is a poem written by Georgiana Millman, who is a relative of mine. She is a recent graduate of Skidmore College. Her poetry is getting quite a lot of notoriety lately. It's appeared in numerous publications, including Blue Line, the Margie Review, American Journal of Poetry, and the vanguard voices of the Hudson Valley Mohonk Mountain Stage Company. And this poem is titled, Lines Written After 29 Years of Marriage. Lines Written After 29 Years of Marriage. When I closed the front door behind me and stepped off the porch, the snowy owl that was perched on the back of my truck flew straight to the nearest spruce, the force of its wings shaking the tree, spilling pockets of snow. It was from there its white face remained a beacon over night's forest, watching for the smallest movement, watching me carry firewood, those yellow eyes holding still the dark. Back in the house, I placed my hands in yours, showing how cold it was outside, and you held them to your chest. At that moment, across the yard, the owl began turning up its song, solitary voice over a pebble spore, expecting nothing, receiving the unexpected. That was a poem by Georgiana Millman, recent graduate of Skidmore College, and yes, the name is not coincidental, very, very dear relative of mine. Edward Eslin Cummings, more popularly known as E.E. E. Cummings, was an American poet. Lesser known was the fact that he was also a painter, an essayist, a playwright. His body of work encompasses more than 900 poems, several plays and essays, numerous drawings, sketches, paintings, as well as two novels. He is remembered as a preeminent voice of 20th century poetry, as well as one of the most popular. And this poem is titled, Somewhere I Have Never Traveled Gladly Beyond. And most of Cummings' poems were titled using the first line of his poems. This was made popular by the use uh, that Woody Allen used uh, in the poem, I'm sorry, in the film, Hannah and Her Sisters. Also, very little known fact, Hillman Curtis, the, the great filmmaker, made a, a short film based on Hannah and her sisters, and the use of that same poem. An homage to an homage to an homage. I love that. Somewhere I have never traveled, gladly beyond any experience, your eyes have their silence. In your most frail gesture are things which enclose me, or which I cannot touch because they are too near. 
Your slightest look will easily unclose me, though I have closed myself as fingers. You open always, petal by petal, myself as spring opens, touching skillfully, mysteriously, her first rose. Or, if your wish to be me, close I, and my life will shut very beautifully, suddenly, as when the heart of this flower imagines the snow carefully everywhere descending. Nothing which we are to perceive in this world equals the power of your intense fragility, whose texture compels me with the color of its countries, rendering death and forever with each breathing. I do not know what it is about you that closes and opens. Only something in me understands the voice of your eyes is deeper than all roses. Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. What a marvelous poem by E.E. E. Cummings. I do think that is one of my most favorite lines in all of literature. Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. I have spent decades thinking about that line. What did he mean? Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. E.E. E. Cummings, the marvelous, marvelous E.E. E. Cummings. I want to read another poem by E.E. E. Cummings. And I, there's so many, so many wonderful E.E. E. Cummings poems. It's, it's really quite hard to pick them. But I'm going to read another one, and this is called, It is So Long Since My Heart Has Been With Yours. It is so long since my heart has been with yours, shut by our mingling arms through a darkness where new lights begin and increase, since your mind has walked into my kiss as a stranger, into the streets and colors of a town that I have perhaps forgotten how, always, from these hurrying crudities of blood and, and flesh, love coins his most gradual gesture and whittles life to eternity, after which our separating selves become museums filled with skillfully stuffed memories. Marvelous, isn't it? I'm going to read a poem now by T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot's name, his full name, Thomas Stearns Eliot, and he was a poet, a dramatist, a literary critic. He's very famously known for poems like The Hollow Man, with its fabulous line, not with a bang, but a whimper. This is one of my favorite poems. It's titled Preludes, and I think it's one of his most visual poems. I think that it's a poem that truly does appeal to me, not only as somebody that loves poetry, but also somebody that loves visual images. It is called Preludes. It's from the book uh, Harmonium. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm making a mistake with that one. This is from the Heath Book of Poetry. The winter evening settles down with smells of stakes and passageways. Six o'clock. The burnt-out ends of smoky days and now a gusty shower wraps. The grimy scraps of withered leaves about your feet and newspapers from vacant lots. The showers beat on broken blinds and chimney pots at the corner of the street. 
a lonely cab horse steams and stamps, and then the lighting of the lamps. The morning comes to consciousness of faint, stale smells of beer from the sawdust-trampled street with all its muddy feet that press to early coffee stands with the other masquerades that time resumes one thinks of all the hands that are raising dingy shades in a thousand furnished rooms. You tossed a blanket from the bed. You lay upon your back and waited. You dozed and watched the eat, the night revealing the thousand sordid images of which your soul was constituted. They flickered against the ceiling. And when all the world came back and the light crept up between the shutters and you heard the sparrows in the gutters, you had such a vision of the street as the street hardly understands. Sitting along the bed's edge where you curled the papers from your hair or clasped the yellow soles of feet in palms of both soiled hands. His soul stretched tight across the skies that fade behind a city block or trampled by insistent feet at four and five and six o'clock and short square fingers stuffing pipes and evening newspapers and eyes assured of certain certainties the conscience of a blackened street impatient to assume the world. I am moved by fancies that are curled around these images and cling the notion of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. Wipe your hand across your mouth and laugh. The worlds revolve like ancient women gathering fuel in vacant lots. That was Preludes by T.S. Eliot, the poet, the dramatist, the literary critic, Nobel Prize winning writer, poet. And I am now going to read another poem. This is by Wallace Stevens. Wallace Stevens. Oh, what can be said about Wallace Stevens that could accurately describe his magnificence? He was a major American modern poet. He was born in Reading, Pennsylvania in 1879, and he spent most of his adult life working for an insurance company in Connecticut. And he felt that his day job helped fuel his writing of poetry. He actually stopped working for a while, but went back when he felt that he wrote better when he had a full-time job. Throughout his poetic career, Stevens was concerned with the notions of what to think about the world now that our old notions of religion no longer suffice. And he died in 1955, so you can see truly how pertinent these ways of thinking were, still are very accurate today. This is a poem called The Snowman, and it's a poem from his first book of poetry, Harmonium. It was first published in 1921, and this is called The Snowman. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow, and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think 
of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land, full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow. And nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there, and the nothing that is. And the nothing that is. Marvelous, marvelous poem by Wallace Stevens. This is my last poem. This is the last piece I'm going to read today. This is by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Lawrence Ferlinghetti was actually born Lawrence Ferling in 1919, and he's an American poet and painter and the co-founder of City Lights Booksellers and Publishers in San Francisco. He's an author of poetry, translations, fiction, theater, art criticism, film narration. His book, A Coney Island of the Mind, was published in 1958, and it has been translated into nine languages and sold over a million copies. The poem is titled, The Penny Candy Store Beyond the E.L. The penny candy store beyond the E.L. is where I first fell in love with unreality. Jelly beans glowed in the semi-gloom of that September afternoon. A cat upon the counter moved among the licorice sticks and Tootsie Rolls and Oh Boy gum. Outside, the leaves were falling as they died. A wind had blown away the sun. A girl ran in. Her hair was rainy. Her breasts were breathless in the little room. Outside, the leaves were falling, and they cried. Too soon. Too soon. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, The Penny Candy Store Beyond the E.L., written in the 1950s. So it's National Poetry Month, and that is why we have spent the last hour sharing poems and a short story to really honor the artists that create this wonderful, wonderful, necessary art. For anybody that's interested in learning more about poetry, I urge you to go to the website www.poetryfoundation.org. Marvelous marvelous resource and also the same people who publish poetry magazine i want to close the show with a mention of a very worthy effort from the brilliant minds at koodle.com one of their biennial efforts is titled field tested books field tested books is a collection of short pieces from authors writing about a time when a place you were in influenced a book you were reading, or vice versa. Their latest effort will be out around May 12th, and John Salamine from Spike Press is designing this edition's poster. For more information, please go to www.coodle.com. That's C-O-U-D-A-L. I'd like to let everybody know that we've come to the end of... This very special episode of Design Matters. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'd like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, to Jeff and Ruben at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is designer and DJ Mick Hodgson from the design firm PhD. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference. Or we can do both. 
I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.